We've come to a time in our service now, we'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to our home base passage that we've been working through in Galatians 4, beginning at verse 4. That's on page 825 if you're using this Brown Pew Bible. And then once you've got that, if you could flip over and stick your finger in John 14, beginning at verse 15. That's on page 764. And when you found that, would you stand together with me and we'll read these passages together, starting with Galatians 4, beginning at verse 4. Paul says this, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And here's where we're going to focus in today. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Now flip over to John 14, beginning at verse 15. Jesus says this, if you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us? And not to the world. And Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. The Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away. I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me just pray for us once more and ask God's blessing, particularly on this time in his word together. Spirit of God, we ask you now to speak true things to us, uh, to open up this word which we believe you inspired men to write down to open up this word, to speak exactly what you want it to speak, to uh, communicate what you want it to communicate, to pierce right down to the very core of us. You say this word is a living word. It's living and active, able to 
bypass any barriers or walls that we put up or we might want to put in front of it. You tell us when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, it was a cold, uh, unusually snowy Sunday in Colchester, Essex, January 6, 1850, when the renowned Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, unable to travel any further because of uh, the deep snow, stumbled into a primitive Methodist church on Artillery Street. He was just 15 years of age at this time. And as the story goes, uh, there was like 12 or 15 people in the church uh, even the pastor hadn't been able to make it that Sunday because of the weather. And so in absence of anyone to give the message, uh, uh, a tailor, uh, a shoemaker, they're not really sure. Some layman gets up that Sunday and gives the message from the passage that was supposed to be preached on that Sunday from Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one else. As Spurgeon recounts the experience himself, he writes, he, that is this tailor, had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him just to keep repeating the text. And there was nothing needed, by me at any rate, except his text. I remember he said, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. I toyed with the idea of trying to learn an Essex accent for this. I just threw it away. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. It says, look. Now, looking, don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just says, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and you can look. A child can look. One who's almost an idiot can look. However weak or however poor a man may be, he can look. And if he looks, the promise is that he shall live. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but there's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Spurgeon goes on, the preacher managed to spin that out for about 10 minutes and then running out of anything fresh to say, looked directly at me and said, young man, you look very miserable. How many of you preachers in here, if you've ever tried this before, I haven't. Uh, well, I did look miserable, Spurgeon says, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. The preacher went on, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this very moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted at the top of his voice, as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look. 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 You need to have, you have nothing to do but look and live. I'm trying to imagine this in my mind, what that was like. Uh, Spurgeon concludes, though, however, he says, and I did look. And I thank God that I owe my conversion to Christ to an unknown person who was certainly no minister in the ordinary acceptation of the term, but who could say this much, look unto Christ and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. As we conclude our Advent teaching series this morning in the fullness of time, working through our way through those few verses in Galatians, what we kind of call the, 
Christmas according to Galatians. And then looking now at verse 6 in particular, along with this supplementary passage in John 14, we're going to focus on the very last reason that the Apostle Paul gives us as to why God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law about 2,000 years ago when the time had fully come. What we've seen up to this point, if you haven't been with us, quick recap, is that in Jesus, God sent us the perfect substitute, fully God and fully man, who would free us from the condemnation under the law under which we stood justly condemned. And then what we saw last week was that not only does God pay our debt and credit us with his perfect obedience, he makes a way for us to be adopted as children of God with the full rights and privileges of sons. Revealing that not only does God want to redeem us, he wants to be in relationship with us. And the last result of Jesus' coming that Paul lists for us here in Galatians 4, we see explicitly there in verse 6. Let me read it for us once again. He says, because you are sons. So there's a causal element here. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now maybe you'd want to ask, okay, well, if God's already done the redeeming part, he's already adopted us as sons, why is this sending of the spirit even necessary? And, and if it is necessary... What are the implications for us today? Well, you ask really great questions. Those are great questions. I'll do my best to follow up and give more explanation in our time together. But very, just the simplest and most straightforward answer to the question that I can give you as it relates to our experience of both our redemption and our adoption in Jesus Christ that we have is this. God's purpose in sending the Spirit ultimately is to do for you and for me what that stand-in Methodist preacher did for Charles Spurgeon. Namely, to call you again and again and again and again. Look to Jesus. That's what the Spirit, his role is to say, look, look to him. Particularly, this has so much relevance as it relates to our experience of our adoption and our redemption. That, that the Spirit would say, keep looking to him. Look to him. Because if you didn't know, that means everything. It means everything as it relates to how you will or will not live out of those redeemed and adopted realities on a day-to-day basis. How you experience them. If you experience them as true, you'll live out of those realities in your own life. Or as theologian F.F. Bruce says it this way, The purpose of the Son's mission was to give the rights of sonship. The purpose of the Spirit's mission is to give the power in using them. So to help us understand and appreciate the essential role of the Holy Spirit in the whole story of Jesus coming at Christmas, also that the redemption and adoption that Jesus came to bring might not just be legally true, but also experientially true. I want to look at our passage, well, these two passages together in just three ways. We're going to talk about the work of a counselor. What does that counselor do? And then we're going to look at the spirit of truth and then finally the spirit of sonship. Okay, so the work of a counselor, the spirit of truth, and the spirit of sonship. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage in John 14? We'll start there. Follow along with me as we close out Paul's Christmas message of the Son of God, born of a woman, in the fullness of time. 
Okay, so let's begin talking about the work of a counselor. What is the work of a counselor? The counselor. Now, if you look at our passage in John 14, and you actually flip back one page to the very first verse of that chapter, what you'll see, at least if you're using the New International Version, is that there's this chapter heading listed above chapter 14 that says, Jesus comforts his disciples. Jesus comforts his disciples. Now, no, John didn't write these headings. These were added much later, as were verse numbers and all that stuff, which are very helpful. I'm glad for it. But it's certainly an accurate heading. It certainly does describe well what's going on because over the course of this meal that's described in the previous chapters, this is right before the Passover and Jesus is ready to head to the cross, Jesus has revealed everything from Judas's betrayal, uh, Peter's denial, and he's gone on to just top off this staff dinner here by saying, hey, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't come. So, yeah, I'd say that's a dinner after which we need some comfort. We need some kind of like, what do we do now? Help me out here. But I bring that up not just simply to give us context, but also to help you see how all these troubling circumstances Jesus brought up, along with that chapter heading, can, at least they have the potential anyways to cause us to misinterpret what Jesus means in verse 16 when he describes the Holy Spirit as a counselor. We can get it wrong by if we just kind of use the circumstances solely to understand. Because if you're at all like me, you see Jesus, he's, he's comforting his disciples in the midst of all these bombshells that he's just dropped. So when he says, yeah, okay, don't worry. Yes, I am going away, but don't worry. I'm going to send you another counselor. Well, our mind immediately assumes what Jesus means is like a psychologist, a clinical counselor, something like that, uh, like, like in first aid. When you're too tired from giving compressions anymore, you call someone in to say, I can't do it anymore. Can you come and give compressions for a while? You, you call someone in to help. We think that Jesus means that kind of counselor, someone just to continue the comfort that he's been given now that he's going away. Now hear me, this is not at all to suggest that the Holy Spirit doesn't offer us comfort and counsel in times of danger and distress. Absolutely he does. There's all kinds of verses that speak to that reality too. And in fact, Jesus' promise to send the Holy Spirit after he leaves is intended to offer them comfort, to, to offer them peace in this time of, of worry and chaos and questioning. But the point is, the, the Greek word that Jesus uses here to describe the Holy Spirit, parakletos, has far more to do actually with a defense attorney, a, a, a legal counselor, than it does to do with a critical incident or, or a clinical counselor. And we know this in large part because of something that John says later on in 1 John chapter 2. He writes this, My dear children, I am writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have a parakletos. We have an advocate. We have a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And if you look closely at Jesus' promise in verse 16 of our passage, in light of his departure, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit that he's now going to ask the Father to send with the exact same word, another parakletos, another counselor. Okay, so let's, let's, let's follow Jesus' chosen terminology here and ask ourselves, okay, so what, is a, what does a counselor like this do? What does a defense attorney do in a legal setting? Well, what do they do? They come alongside and speak in defense of the accused before the judge, right? They also, if you think about it, uh, a counselor like this also speaks in place of the accused, don't they? 
If you've ever uh, seen a criminal trial, you might have noticed the accused never actually is even permitted to address the judge. Only the, the counselor or the defense attorney is allowed to speak to the judge on the accused's behalf. What that means, of course, is then ultimately the fate of the accused lies solely in the success or the failure of their advocate to defend them. And of course, the goal of that counselor is to present the facts, present a case in such a way that the, uh, the case is dropped, uh, or the, the case is dismissed so that they can walk freely out of the courtroom. So, there's a great deal more we could say about this. As you know, I'm, I, I love to harp on legal dramas and lawyer stuff because I kind of geek out about that. But we're going to stop there and just say what, what, that, what that tells us, generally speaking, is the work of a counselor. That's what he does. He comes alongside. He speaks on, a, on behalf of and in place of the accused. And he tries to present a case that will have the case dismissed so that this person can go free. The reason I wanted to point that out primarily is because of that word Jesus uses to describe, or the word that's used to describe Jesus in, in the Greek there, parakletos, in John is the same one that he uses when he speaks of the one that he's going to send once he goes away. It's going to be another parakletos, another counselor. But now that we understand, at least have a greater understanding of what a counselor in this sense that Jesus is using does, well, how does that relate to our experience of the redemption and the adoption Jesus came in the fullness of time to bring? Well, that's what we're going to look at next here, looking, first of all, at the experience of our redemption and the role of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. Now, if you remember back in Galatians 4, you don't need to turn there, but if you remember as we've been going through this, uh, Paul describes a series of events, kind of like a, a chain of events that happen that all seem to relate to each other and, and, and build upon each other. And the first two events that he links together are, are Jesus being sent by God, born of a woman, so fully God and fully man, and being born under the law. And the result of joining those two events together, according to Paul, was to redeem us from the curse of the law under which we stood condemned because we couldn't live according to it perfectly. But this is now where Jesus' description of the Holy Spirit in John 14 as another counselor, another advocate or legal defender fits perfectly as it relates to our experience of the redemption that Jesus came to bring us from under the law. Let's look at two descriptions that were given here of the Spirit, beginning with verse 16 and 17. Look with me there if you've got John 14 open. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world does not accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Okay, so here we have two important details that Paul is giving us about the Holy Spirit. First of all, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. That's how he describes him. The Spirit of truth, which means, in this context, both his counsel to us, as well as his testimony on behalf of us, is completely trustworthy and reliable. He is the, the, the spirit of truth, the counselor who speaks in a trustworthy manner, which when you compare that against uh, the one who's presented as, you could say, the, the prosecuting attorney, the devil, Satan, he is described in Revelation 12 as our accuser, and, and John 8 as both a liar and the father of lies. And so the one that God sends to stand beside us in this courtroom 
is the spirit of truth, the one who can speak what is true in the face of all these lies and accusations being sent against us. I'd say that's pretty helpful. We need that kind of representation. Secondly, you see also he says the Holy Spirit remains with us forever. You know, see, he says that he will, he will live with you and be in you, which is necessary because Jesus says, I'm going away. And so it's great. He is our advocate that stands before the Father in heaven, but he stands before the Father in heaven up here. We, we need a, someone who can be present with us, give us counsel here. So this means we now have an advocate present in heaven, as well as one closely, intimately, and continuously connected with us here on earth. We've got both. That's pretty great news. The next description Jesus gives us of the Spirit is in verse 25 and 26. Look with me there. After speaking of the importance of obedience to his teaching, Jesus says this, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Okay, so, so now we learn that the Spirit who is perfectly trustworthy and who dwells permanently with us also is going to teach us all things and remind us of all Jesus' words. And this has particular relevance now when you think of trials and, and legal counsel, when you consider the concept of something like legal precedent. Think of how that works in a court case. Legal precedent, which usually refers to cases that have been ruled on in the past, but which deal with similar issues or facts on the case that's presently being decided. So they're trying to come to a, a, an agreement of what is this course or what is this case about? And they're going to say, we've got this case before that's already been decided on the same issue. And look at how they ruled. So this helps to, the judge to understand how we should decide here. That's really great news for us. That's great news because how much stronger a case could be presented as it relates to your truly being redeemed from condemnation under the law than the precedent of the perfect spotless son of God going to the cross taking the full penalty for your sins on himself. A, a case that was tried and sentenced carried out 2,000 years ago, but which secured a, a binding legal precedent that extends both all the way back to the beginning of history as well to, to the end of it. This is the binding legal precedent of, no, 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 that's been paid for already. That case has been decided on already and it's been paid in full. This is, this is the, the great exchange, as Martin Luther called it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where the sinless God who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Or as the author of Hebrews so simply and powerfully says, by his one sacrifice he perfected for all time those who are being made holy. But I don't know if, you, if this has already come up in your mind as I'm talking about this. If you consider yourself a Christian here this morning, you might be saying to yourself as I'm talking about all this, you might be like, yeah, I, I already believe that. Great, that, that's good. Uh, so so what, what courtroom is my guilt or innocence still being tried in now that Jesus has already paid my debt in full? And if you really don't know... The answer is, you and I, we are tried every single day of our lives in the courtroom of our own hearts and minds. You're tried every single day there in those courtrooms as it relates to your guilt or innocence before God. 
And this is why I said when we began, the Spirit's coming has as much to do with the experience of our redemption as it does to do with the legal reality of it. Because as far as our advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ, is concerned, our case was already tried and settled the moment we put our faith in him. You were declared guilty but not legally responsible because Jesus demonstrated in that courtroom of heaven he'd already paid the penalty for your sin. So case closed. Like me, I wonder how many of you here this morning know that awful, terrible moment as well. Once the amazing grace moment of our salvation or or, our understanding of our forgiveness has worn off and we find ourselves once again waist deep in the very sin that Jesus just forgave us from. And the court of our own heart and mind can bring some of the most crushing, condemning accusations possible in the courtroom of our own heart and mind, causing us to do one of two things, usually, causing us to either sink into despair, I must not really be redeemed, or causing us to try and start working harder to try and earn that not guilty verdict once again. Even though that's a verdict that was already purchased for us in Jesus, we start trying to earn what was already purchased for us. And if you know either one of those feelings, as it's my guess you do, you know precisely why we need another counselor here on earth. We need another counselor, one who is present and absolutely trustworthy, but who will teach us all things and like that Methodist preacher, call out again and again to the judge and jury of your own weary heart, look to Christ. In that moment where you don't trust the reality of your redemption, we'll say, look to him. Look at what your advocate in heaven has already accomplished for you. He's going to start bringing up legal precedents to you. He's going to say, remember, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Remember, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth in those moments where you don't trust, you don't experience the truth of your redemption. To present to you again and again the reality of it until you feel it and experience it and live out of it. For as John says later in 1 John chapter 3, if our hearts condemn us, which to me clearly implies that's something that's possible. If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. The Father knows what's true. He he knows what's true of those who put their faith in Jesus. He's not swayed. His judgment of you is not at all moved or, or affected by the condemnation that your heart brings against you. He knows what's true of you. But he sends the spirit of truth so you wouldn't just know your redemption is true like a concept, but that you would also experience it as true, feel it as true, be reminded of what's true in those moments where you don't trust it. So that's the work of a counselor. Then the way the spirit of truth reminds us of what's true about the redemption Jesus came to bring us so that we might live out of that reality when we experience it as true. The last thing I want to show you is the same spirit, how he also helps us to experience our adoption. 
Let's look lastly at the role of the, the Holy Spirit as the spirit of sonship. The spirit of sonship. Now, again, going back to that home base passage in Galatians 4, once our redemption under the law is complete, the next two links in the chain that Paul includes are our adoption as sons. And we talked last week about the, the significance of the fact that uh, being adopted as sons has to Paul's adoption metaphor. And then the sending of the Spirit into our hearts. Remember, he says, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. And what that shows us, at least, if Paul's including that in his chain of events, what that shows us is that the sending of the Holy Spirit is not incidental to the coming of Jesus at Christmas. It's clearly related in some way. What way is it? But it also shows us something else in particular, because if you remember Paul's description of the spirit that God sends into the hearts of his adopted children, he calls him, quote, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Did you notice that? The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. What does that mean? Well, first of all, uh, first of all, Abba, he's not referring to a, a Swedish pop group uh, at all. He's speaking specifically, this is an intimate Aramaic term for father, not quite as, as simple as daddy, D.A. Carson suggests, but still a, a, an intimate term that a child would use for their father. Secondly, then, this also is intended to be a direct reference, this, this idea of the spirit that calls out Abba, Father. It's meant to be a direct reference to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross, where Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And all this taken together, what that means is that in some mysterious way, when God redeems us and then adopts us as children, he puts the same spirit of his son in our hearts who looks to and speaks to God just the same way Jesus did as our father. We speak to him now as our father, just as Jesus did. Which, by the way, is why Jesus can also comfort his disciples when he's about to leave, telling them, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How? By sending the Spirit of the Son to dwell in our hearts. The Spirit of the Son now dwells in us, which means by going away, Jesus has now made it possible for him to actually dwell with all of us by his Spirit. That's what made it possible. In fact, if you know your Bible well, you might have immediately been thinking when you hear that the spirit who calls out Abba Father you might have been thinking of something else the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 when he uses the exact same language listen to what he says here Romans 8 uh, verse 15 he says for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear but you received the spirit of sonship and by him we cry Abba Father that word sonship being the very same term that Paul uses in Galatians 4, to describe our placement as sons. The spirit of adoption, the spirit of our placement as sons in God's kingdom. But now here once again, although our adoption as sons by the Father is legally true, and our advocate in heaven surely knows that, we need the testimony of another counselor, the spirit of sonship, who is, he's present, he's trustworthy, his reminding role speaks in our defense in the courtroom of your own heart and mind. We need it here as well. 
We need it in this moment, too, because just as our continued struggle and failure at times with sin can cause the experience of our redemption to feel untrue, it can also cause the experience of our adoption to feel untrue as well. We fail in some way, and you think, man, if I was, if I was really a child of God, we reason, there's no way I could do something like this. I never could have carried out something like that. We begin to doubt the reality of it. We say things like, there, there's no way God could accept me as his child now. You ever felt that way? And yet thinking of those same condemned responses uh, of despair or, or seeking to earn our place back in his kingdom again, I wonder if that description didn't immediately bring to mind something else Jesus describes about a son in Luke 15, once he's come to his senses and returned to his father. Do you remember what the son's planned speech was to his father? Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. But here, the spirit of sonship testifies in our defense once again, just as we desperately need him to. As Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That's why he's there to remind you of what's true and to help you experience it and know it, calling out to you in those moments where your adoption doesn't feel true anymore. No, 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 look to Christ. Look back with me. Look at what your advocate in heaven has also accomplished for you in his coming. Remember, Remember, it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of your works. You didn't earn your way in. Remember, Jesus promised, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. These are the legal precedents he continues to impress on our hearts, reminding us of what's true of our adoption. You are his. His testimony points us again and again to our advocate before the Father who secures your adoption for all time and who reminds you in those moments when it doesn't feel true, no, you are his child. You are my child and you remain my child. He does this so that our experience of the truth of our adoption once again is real and, and, and we experience it and feel it just as the prodigal son did. When we are willing to listen to his voice, to turn and look to the father, and we find, just like the prodigal son did, instead of rejection, we find a father running to us. Instead of censure, we find an embrace and a robe and a ring of our father. In his book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit, Finding Fullness in Our Walk with God, pastor and author J.I. Packer, beautifully describes the work of the Holy Spirit as being like a floodlight. He writes, the Holy Spirit's distinctive new covenant role then is to fulfill what we may call a floodlight ministry in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on, when floodlighting is done well, the floodlights are so placed so that you do not see them. 
You're not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you're meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not have been seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all details into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. Maybe you're here this morning right now and you've never looked to Jesus Christ. That's not been something you've experienced in your own life and you've never experienced or known the adoption or the redemption that's available to you and him. If that's where you're at this morning, I pray you would hear the Spirit's call. Look to Christ. Look to him. You have nothing to do but to look and to live. And you can know this very day in looking the redemption and the adoption that Jesus came to bring. Or maybe you're here this morning and you have looked to him, but maybe you failed in some way. Maybe you've wandered away from Christ. And right now the experience of those realities, although they're legally true, they don't feel true. And because they don't feel true, you don't live out of those realities because they no longer feel like they're true of you. If that's where you're at this morning, my prayer for you as well is that you would hear the Spirit's call. Look to Jesus. Look to your advocate in heaven. Remember what he accomplished for you. The case has been settled. It's true. Your sin's been covered in full. You, ne- you, you didn't earn your way in the first time. You can't continue to earn your way in. Once you are his child, you are always his child. Live out of those realities. Because that's the Spirit's role. That's the Spirit's role that he plays in our hearts and why the sending of the Spirit is so integral to the coming of Jesus in the fullness of time on that first Christmas. To not only apply the redeeming and adopting work of Jesus to all to come to him in faith, making it legally true, but to help you to continue to experience as true and therefore live out of those realities. So my prayer for each one of you and for myself as well is this morning is may we hear the call of another counselor today. The spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. And may we experience as true what has already been made legally true by our advocate in heaven. The son who came in the fullness of time.